Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hello, welcome back to episode number 30. And today I'm diving deep into more complex fertility and infertility subjects with a fellow practitioner here in the UK, Angela Heap. So Angela is also known as the fertility nutritionist on Instagram, and she's a nutritional therapist who specializes in fertility, hormonal management and pregnancy. She uses diagnostic tools to support her work in bringing back her clients' bodies into balance, focusing heavily on testing and genetics. Angela also closely works with a number of internationally renowned experts in the field of fertility and is the fertility and pregnancy specialist on two of the largest MTHFR mutation forums on Facebook with over 14,000 members. Angela also provides voluntary support for one of the largest PCOS Facebook groups with over 26,000 users and over the last four years has become more involved with PCOS because as many as one in three of her clients are being diagnosed with this condition. She provides seminars around hormones for leading labs in the UK and writes regularly for magazines and on her blog. She's also just opened up the first round of her new online course, Fertility Unlocked, which she's hoping to run again later on in this year. So definitely give her a follow on her Instagram page and I'm sure you'll be able to get more information about that once it's released again later in 2019. In this episode, we discuss some of the more complex subjects when it comes to fertility. We've already covered the basics of nutrition and lifestyle on episode three with my, with my friend Rosie Tadman. I definitely recommend going and listening to that one first if you haven't already, just to get an understanding of some of the more basic things when it comes to fertility and hormonal balance. But this episode is great if you've already implemented some of these foundational changes and you're still not seeing results or you're still, not, you're still having trouble conceiving. We chat about the role of thyroid disorders, autoimmunity, clotting disorders, genetics and PCOS when it comes to infertility or things like reoccurring miscarriage. And they all sound very scary and maybe overwhelming, but the information is very important and it will help you try and identify things and rule things out when it comes to your fertility journey. And I'll definitely have to get Angela back on to do a part two for this podcast because I had pages of questions and we sadly didn't get a chance to cover them so stay tuned for a future episode where we'll go deep into the subjects of egg and sperm health IVF support and other things like environmental toxicity because I know Angela has personal experience with some of these things and wants to share her knowledge on that as well so let's get straight into the episode with Angela Heap. Hi Angela welcome to the podcast 
Hi Vivian, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. You're welcome. I'm excited to dive into the more complex subjects of fertility because I've had Rosie on in the past and I'll link that episode in the show notes. We spoke about the kind of basics of fertility, hormonal balance. So this one is for the people who are already eating a healthy diet, they're living a healthy lifestyle, avoiding the toxins, all of these things. So I wanted to get you on as the fertility expert to talk about some more complex subjects, but hopefully you can break it down into more simple, simple terms. Yeah, absolutely. And it's great you've had Rosie on. Love Rosie. She's got you know so much to say about fertility. So it's great you've covered all the basics. Exactly. I agree with that one. It was a good episode. Um, so I wanted to ask you how you got into the world of fertility and what made you want to specialise in fertility in particular? Um, well, I guess I've always been one of those really uh, sad women that's really been fascinated by hormones from the moment I got my period. So I always had that kind of interest. Um, I never had any major problems to begin with, with my periods or them going missing or you know, problems with pain or anything like that. So I guess from that perspective, it was quite easy for me to study it and get interested in it. Um, but as I got older, I started to, you know, get some problems with um, migraines and I got in, interested in, in why that was happening. I went to conventional medicine, you know, down the doctor's route and secondary care and passed off to endocrinologists and all sorts, but they didn't really seem to be able to help me much. So I kind of got into it from that side and finding out I had a really high level of prolactin actually started me down that rabbit hole. So I always generally tend to suffer more from that. And when my stress levels get pretty high, also my prolactin starts to get higher as well. So that's something that, um, you know, is, is a fascinating subject for me. Why as females were actually, you know, able to do this, what happens at each of the phases, what hormones are important in the follicular phase, what are important in the luteal phase, just fascinated it with the whole subject really Vivian and I think you know we we all should be as women you know the amazing things we can do and we're told you know that periods are, are awful they're a curse you know we're told to take a contraceptive pill that effectively makes us more like men you know we're not small men we actually need to understand our bodies a lot more and I'm absolutely fascinated by it and and really keen to help educate women and that's what I do as part of my consultations with them as well. Yeah, I think I'm one of those geeks as well who <laughs> obsessed with hormones. I'm there with you, don't worry. <laughs> do you think that infertility is on the rise? And if yes, why do you think that is? I know there's a number of factors. What do you think are the big factors in that? Yeah, and I think this is why I'm getting busier, really, Vivian. It's a bit of a catch-22 situation. You know, I'm getting more people coming to me now in the last two years than I probably have done in my whole career of 11 years, really. So I think what's happening is we're living in a much more complicated world now. Um, there's, you know, a range of things as to why people's fertility are actually going down. And I guess we'll probably be talking about some of those things. But I think, you know, genetics definitely plays a big part into that. You know, and if we've had um, something that's caused famine or disease in the past, if we're in a period now of time where which our bodies you know in as a human history have never actually experienced where we've had all sorts of food that we can eat at any time um you know and our bodies are getting into the stage where you know we're having obesity and loads of different kind of conditions that relate to that there's also you know all sorts of things happening from 
the fact that the world has become a lot more polluted and we're not cooking food the way we used to like our ancestors were and we're not listening to some of that you know valuable um knowledge and insight really that our great grandmothers were and our grandparents um were eating a much more kind of um modern diet which actually although we have more choice we're choosing the wrong things really and we're going down that route um, and we're not listening to mother nature in terms of things that are in season and things that are important for the bodies in terms of our nutrients so although we've kind of evolved as human beings in terms of you know what's happening to us and how we've got access to better food and healthcare, we're actually now probably in a state much more health unhealthier than even our parents are and our mortality rates are actually lower than them because what we're doing is with more choice we're choosing more healthier options really which again is impacting our fertility um you know all the things that we're having the um the environments we're living in as well are making a major impact on our delicate um brain to ovary connection and brain to testy connection and i think these things are, are very important and once the body is in in an unbalanced state fertility is one of the first things to actually um leave the party effectively so um, we need to be in a balanced state for our body to actually produce healthy eggs and, and sperm and also healthy babies. Yeah, that's definitely true. Fertility is not a priority. Your body's going to focus on the cellular health, your brain function, your digestion before it, it cares about your fertility. And that's kind of sad to think, but it's absolutely true and something to be aware of. And I do want to get into the more um, complexities of genetics a bit later on but first I want you to kind of give an overview of some of the relatively basic things that people aren't maybe doing so couples what what common things are they overlooking when it comes to the fertility that you see um one of the major things that I'm aware of as as an educator really around um, supporting couples in this whole space is they're totally unaware of their bodies, um, you know, and what they're doing, particularly females, obviously, because their body, when it, it gets that cycle stage where it's, you know, the follicular phase, ovulation and luteal, they're absolutely clueless when it comes to that. So I think one of them, the basics that I do really is, is getting them to understand their body and looking at fertility awareness methods, really. So looking at things like how heavy your periods are as an indication of your health, um, you know, what's happening with the pain levels in there. If it's pain and inflammation, then that's going to be, you know, something that the body listens to and, and may actually, um, you know, be, be a difficult thing for it to deal with. Um, and also things like, um, you know, the length of your period as well. Um, things also like the length of the cycle as well. How long is it between each period? So getting people to understand the basics of their own cycle as a female is very, very important. And also the signs of fertility, like um, cervical fluid as well. You know, I don't know about you, but as, as a woman, we're not told anything about this. You know, we, we kind of sit around the classroom when we're actually having that um, cervical fluid. I, I remember thinking, God, what's all this jelly-like stuff in my pants? <laughs> yeah. know, and you, you literally think there's something wrong with you. You call it discharge. I mean, I absolutely hate that word when people come to me and say, I've got loads of discharge and I just say, well, it's not a sewage font, you know, it's the most amazing thing the body can actually do and produce. And it's a sign and, and it's communicating with you as a female. So it's listening to those signs, understanding your cycle a bit more and, and just using that as knowledge and support to help you to um, sort of time sex and, you know, do that at the right time and doing things like 
um, you know, taking your basal body temperature and, you know, building up a picture of your cycle um, so that you can actually find out when you're most fertile. Um, looking at things like your cervical position as well you know there's so much information that the human body actually tells you in terms of these things um, and for many you know many generations um, we used to pass that information on and I think in this this generation and probably the one before us we've really started to kind of ignore those signs and go on things like you know the oral contraceptive pill or the patch and effectively that just kind of masculinizes women it just kind of makes them you know on the level we've got one hormone it just kind of keeps going there um so it's really important to know also about you know certain times in your month when you're more productive based on some of the hormones as well so all of this information we've got and we can glean but sadly i think we don't really understand that um, and likewise for men as well you know men um their testicles were you know designed to be outside of their body i think you know there's a lot of things they're doing now that are actually changing the way that their fertility um is presenting like for instance the men in lycra you know going to the gym wearing lycra shorts and you know pants on top of underneath their pants and then doing lots of things like you 20 know, layers absolutely too many layers guys you know and that's not good for you because we can't um then get the right temperature for um you know making sperm and that can actually mutate the sperm cause problems with morphology and also count as well so there's all of these basic things really that people are, are getting wrong um and in a way for me it's it's low-hanging fruit when i can actually sort of speak to them about this and tell them more about it um so understanding your fertility is one thing um and also looking at eating the right way because food is so personal and we use it as a crutch in, in so many ways um you know we self-medicate with it as well so it's about breaking down the habits that people have and helping them to make some new more healthier ones really which will then support that um you know things like looking at the environment around them um the home is an incredibly toxic place um if you're sort of cleaning with all sorts of nasty chemicals, if you're, you know, putting all sorts of things on your body and um, also, you know, the air quality inside your home as well can be pretty toxic. So, you know, part of what I do is, is helping people to understand how the environment can have a huge bearing factor on your fertility, um, just tweaking you over that level if you're already kind of, um, you know, sitting on that, that fence in terms of your fertility. Um, it can actually negate it and make it worse looking at you know diet um and also looking at fertility awareness and timing sex at the wrong time so some of these things are really basic but um we're not taught this at school we're not taught it as you know from our parents or our grandparents anymore and these are things that would have been you know part of that red tent if you like as females and also as men um telling them about fertility and they didn't necessarily as men need to have these conversations back in the day but we are now because i think male fertility is in crisis with the fact that the sperm levels have gone down 1.3 percent every single year since 1973 and i don't know why it's taken them 45 46 years to actually get to this level to make that note but you know it's it's the canary in the coal mine really it's something that we all need to be aware of and and start to work towards because it's not just the females anymore now it's it's also the men that are actually you know compounding that problem i agree definitely and i think by the time this episode has, has aired i've had um, lisa hendrickson jack on from the fertility friday podcast 
and she spoke all about uh, fertility awareness methods so please go and listen to that anyone who's listening who's not aware of what we're talking about because there is that common misconception that we ovulate mid-cycle if we've got a 28-day cycle it's going to be day 14 and that's absolutely not the case and that can cause a lot of issues with the timing of sex like you mentioned and people are just getting that totally wrong and potentially missing out on their fertile window every single month without that education because you're right we're not taught about all of this we're taught that we can get pregnant any day of the month or periods are something to be ashamed about or embarrassed about to hide and cover things up and I've even had clients who think that they've got like a yeast infection or thrush because of the the cervical mucus that they're having because they've never been taught actually what it is and if they've been on the pill for a long period of time and come off they've never actually experienced that until like the 30s which is scary yeah it is isn't it you know learning about your body and the amazing things it can do at 32 as opposed to 16 17 you know it's it's been working for 17 years before that you know and, and we're just literally getting to the point where we're going oh we want to make babies now let's learn a little bit more about us um and actually it's it's something that should be on regular curriculum education you know it's my view and some of the stuff i did in the past before i was a nutritionist was around sexual health um so i would love it if this information got into schools and you know we were given giving people the right information at that point, because that would be so much more empowering than us kind of giving this information to ladies of, you know, 35 and sometimes up to 45, you know, in in some cases when I speak to ladies and they've actually been cycling for all that time and had no clue about what was going on and how to actually use this amazing gift that we have as, as females. I really hope it's going to change. I think slowly it's going in that direction and the help of social media. I think it's really good how more young girls are following accounts that teach them about their body and let them know maybe some of the negative effects of the birth control pill. Obviously, some people need to be on that and that works best for them and that's totally fine. But there are things that you can do to maybe offset some of the negative effects and understand how it's affecting your body as well. So we've covered now like the basics of fertility. Again, there's the diet aspect that we speak more about with Rosie, but I want to get into some of the more complex topics. And the first one being thyroid health. So we know that thyroid is important for every single cell in the body. How does thyroid affect fertility? And why do people develop thyroid issues? Well, the thyroid is, is a key part of the endocrine system. And I think this is what's being missed um, with a lot of visits to the GP, really, in terms of testing. And this is why it's a really key part of my um, overall testing um, package that I have with people initially. Um, and I can just give you an example of that with my sister yesterday. She's been feeling a bit tired lately and, you know, not sleeping so well. And she went to the doctors in the UK and... I looked at her sheet before she went and the only thing she had on it was thyroid stimulating hormone. So they're not even giving you T4 anymore. So (laughs) when you have an overall test for your thyroid, what they're looking for if you have some symptoms of thyroid problems is whether actually the thyroid is working effectively and passing um, those hormones from the uh, the, the active form to the stored form. And that's what happens in between, you know, T3 and T4 Um, because you don't need a huge amount of active in the bloodstream really to help you and support your fertility 
it's very important for fertility thyroid health because I, I always say that the thyroid is kind of like the boiler system of the body it keeps everything going it helps with your metabolism and also it helps support you in pregnancy because when you're pregnant your body is in a completely different state and it's about kind of maintaining and managing that and you can have some issues before getting pregnant with the thyroid not performing as well as it should do in terms of active and then storing what it has if it's got excess you can also have some issues with um you know it getting so bad the thyroid that it becomes um an, an auto autoimmune condition um but what we need to kind of uh, consider there is making sure that everything is right it's a bit like the hormones in the female body are a bit like a you know a beethoven symphony really everything's got to be just right or you know things actually don't work in balance um and we just need to tweak those really here and there and if there's a problem with that it could be that particularly um the cofactors for the thyroid aren't necessarily as good as they should be and when i say cofactors i mean things like nutrients so you know things like iron selenium zinc riboflavin and um, iodine need to be in the right um, balance really there and if you haven't got enough of some of those that can send the signal to the thyroid that actually um, it needs to go low um, because there isn't enough there and it needs to kind of almost be auxiliary mode or if um, there's not enough it can actually make the conversion between your t3 and t4 um, a bit more kind of problematic um, and again when there's not enough um, active form of um, uh, thyroid hormone in the body then you can't also store that as well so we've got some problems there as they say in the bank um, so for fertility we need to be at an optimum level I would say um, between thyroid stimulating hormone and also all the other thyroid hormones in fact sometimes I think the TSH isn't necessarily the most effective um, measure of what's going on in your thyroid. It's kind of like the messenger hormone. So it's almost a kind of indication that things are out of balance, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go on thyroxine if things are a little bit on the higher side. So really, really important to get your thyroid hormone balanced for fertility because it can, if it's out of balance, um, cause miscarriages. And there is a lot of research on PubMed around um, thyroids being out of balance and um, causing issues with um, not maintaining pregnancies as well. So we need to make sure that we've got everything balanced with the boiler system in the body, get everything you know in the right um, levels in terms of those nutrients um, to make uh, make a healthy pregnancy. Because during the second trimester, um, the innate uh, immune system can actually change quite radically and we need to make sure that you know that doesn't affect the um the way that your uh, thyroid hormone is made um and then again can cause some problems with women getting um you know hashimoto's for pregnancy um and then after afterwards as well because we are you know as women when we get pregnant there's so much many nutrients that go into that and the baby's always fine it will pull those nutrients from wherever but unfortunately um, the mums can become very very depleted and again when those depleted levels hit rock bottom that's often when you get thyroid problems after you've given birth and a lot of my clients um, I'm very very conscious of that um, and making sure we load up as much as we can on those cofactors those important nutrients for the thyroid so that those are balanced um, and you don't have those kind of um, perfect storm situations for um, thyroid problems.
And if TSH isn't enough to determine whether thyroid issues are a problem, what do you recommend that people request in terms of a full thyroid panel? What are the, the markers that are important to see? So I go kind of three tiers really for the thyroid. So the initial one is looking at thyroid stimulating hormone, T3, T4. Um, and if that one looks fairly okay, then, you know, I don't necessarily need to go any further. And we've got to look at the conversion between T3 and 4 as a key conversion factor there. And it's important to look at that. If those are looking fairly normal, then I don't need to proceed and there is no issues. Um, but if there is, um, you know, a, a very low levels of um, T3, those are kind of the, the lower part of the range. And also your, your T4 is also in the lower part of the range or there's a big disparity between those two um, in terms of where it should be at optimal levels. I'll then look at the reverse T3 as well. Um, and that's kind of the store where everything's bagged if it's not necessarily working as well as it should, the thyroid. Um, so I'll do that. And then I'll also, as part of that, look at your thyroid antibodies. Um, so um, if those are out of balance, um, which it often can take, you know, up to eight years to actually get into that state. So you've probably consistently not been looking after your thyroid. You may, may have been living in a very stressful environment or working a very stressful job. And that, again, can put pressure on your thyroid as well, because the adrenals can take it because we're meant to survive, really, in terms of using our cortisol in stressful situations. But if we um, get to that point where you know the body's just so exhausted and we're in adrenal fatigue or our adrenals are kind of pumping out too much on a daily basis and it's getting too bad it passes that um, job down to the thyroid or passes some of the load and then that's when the thyroid actually starts to play up a little so it can take a long time to get to that level but if you are at Hashimoto's level which is the thyroid autoimmune condition um, then then we're, we're more in trouble in terms of balancing things um, because I've often had clients that have gone to the doctors and they put them on thyroxine. And again, all thyroxine is doing is just basically topping up your stored levels, really, your T4. Um, and I find that a lot of my clients actually, they just have to keep increasing and increasing it because it doesn't improve how they're actually feeling. Some it can actually do a marvellous job with them, but in some people, um, if we don't look at the rest of the body and inflammation, maybe in the gut and things like that, then, you know, we've got we've got problems with just taking thyroxine. Um, it doesn't necessarily support um, the overall because what it's doing is giving that signal that you've got enough stored um, thyroxine there. And it doesn't necessarily um, help you with the fact that you're not making things and the cofactors aren't in there to support um, making that thyroid hormone in the first place. Yeah, it drives me insane when doctors maybe see a slightly elevated TSH or the thyroid's a little bit abnormal, but they just yeah. want to keep keep an eye on it. They'll monitor it and they're just mm -hmm. waiting for the thyroid to fully crash before they intervene with the medication. And yeah. I don't think that antibodies are regularly checked in the NHS. So it mm -hmm. would probably need to be something that's privately done or through an endocrinologist because in doctors' eyes, there's no real difference in treatment if it was Hashimoto's. Um, some of them aren't really educated on the differences between the autoimmune thyroid um, condition and just regular hypothyroidism. So could you just explain how, how Hashimoto's is different and maybe the treatment 
um, options that people have and how that differs from conventional hypothyroidism? So conventional hypothyroidism generally is just um, an issue with the conversion between the thyroid hormones T3 active to T4 stored. So and between those so it kind of goes backwards and forwards it's a bit like your current account and your bank account really and making sure you've got enough in there to balance things so i i haven't not seen any of my clients have an issue with that in terms of the conversion because i think we're living very stressful lives and it can actually have a bearing on that so most people's conversion can be okay not brilliant um but again that gives me um you know as a functional nutritionist i'm looking at making sure that the best case scenario is there for them and it's not um, going you know, down, down the tube basically. So with um, normal thyroid issues and hypothyroidism or uh, hypothyroidism, um, I need to make sure that the conversion is right between that. And again, like I said, when you've got those conditions, it can be suboptimal and it is with most of my clients, actually even with myself, you know, I've got to keep an eye on that all the time. And I think a lot of nutritional therapists generally do spend a lot of time working on their thyroid as well, um, because it's a big one to get right. It literally is like a, you know, a tuning fork to try and get everything as perfect as it can be really between that conversion. So I wouldn't worry too much if you're T4 and your T3 are slightly suboptimal. What we need to do as nutritional therapists on that side is just put in the right cofactors and nutrients to support that and also try and bring down the stress levels as well. Um, as you said, the TSH um, is, is one of those kind of raft of tests that generally people like doctors and endocrinologists will see and think, oh, there's problems there, we need to put you on some, some pyroxene. It's you know, it's again a useful marker, but it's not the full picture. So when you've got all of those tests together and things are out of balance, that when you that's when I would deem things um, either a problem and we really need to work on that, or suboptimal when you know there's 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 slight tweaks we can do there. It's not got to the stage where the body has literally started attacking its own tissue, and that's what happens with Hashimoto's. Um, it becomes autoimmune and it starts to attack, um, you know, in that particular presentation with um, the, uh, the way the immune system is working, it's actually started to attack the thyroid gland as well. So, and that's when the TPO um, actually and the thyroid antibodies start to change and become much higher than they should be. So normally within normal ranges um, that you see at the doctors, it should be both before, uh, before below sorry, 10 for TPO and I think for the antibodies it should be below 34. So if I see anything above that, I'm starting to think that the body is becoming more autoimmune and we need to work on that. And there is you know, a range that you know, things we can pull back from that. And I have had situations where we've worked on the gut and we've done some amazing work in terms of working on the bacterial load there if there's some issues and that's really helped with Hashimoto's and personally I've never seen anyone with Hashimoto's that hadn't had a gut riddled full of issues so I think you know if anybody's listening to this and thinks oh, I've got Hashimoto's and I don't know where that's come from my personal opinion is it's very much rooted in gut health so um, I think it's always a good idea that you know we if we see Hashimoto's in practice um, or we, we have that as, you know, as a person walking around, it's worth doing a, um, a stool analysis with someone like a nutritional therapist or a functional medicine specialist 
so they can actually root out what's happening there because um you know it tells a story really and i think that's you know the prequel if we like to um the the film really if, if we put Hashimoto's going down that route of you know really good gut health and supporting that and bringing it back into line again will really really help balance out um some of those antibodies and stop the um the body uh looking at your own tissue and thinking it's foreign i've seen that too like whether it's h pylori parasite SIBO there's always mm. something going on in Hashimoto's because there's been studies to show that you you need to have intestinal permeability which is leaky gut in order to develop mm. autoimmunity so yeah always start in the gut whenever there's an autoimmune response going on in the body and mm. onto clotting disorders so this is less um, maybe investigated less spoken about when it comes to infertility how do clotting disorders how did they play into maybe recurring miscarriage or implantation issues and how do we identify and kind of treat them as well so again this is something that if you go through a genetic panel and have a look at your SNPs you can find out quite um an array a, a, a total array of information um when I use that information, I go through 23andMe or, you know, now I'm going through Ancestry.com or also I'm using things like um, Life Code GX for um, the generic sort of information on that. So if I use the raw data, I can actually then plug that into an app and find out a little bit more about their clotting um, disorders there or their, their sort of past um, down the family line if there's been a clotting disorder. And I think a lot of that can be down to septicemia in past um, past lives, if you like. So what happens with septicemia, obviously, that spreads around the body very, very quickly. And if you have um, something like a clotting disorder, that can actually stop that. So it's, it's very clever. It's a mechanism that will stop that happening um, in some instances. So if you have people with lots of clotting disorders, you can probably scratch the surface and find that they may have had ancestors in the past with um you know that have had lots of um diseases around you know you know cutting themselves or getting some form of septicemia um and again that will be something that's passed down the family line there um it's useful obviously you know in medieval britain and whatever when you you know you're in battle and whatever and you can get a, an infected wound and whatever but not necessarily so good in modern Britain, really, or modern, you know, the modern world. Um, because if you have a clotting disorder, it can actually cause problems with um, clots in the placenta and actually, you know, then causing problems with getting oxygen to the baby. So, again, that can be something that I check. Um, and, you know, I, I will look into all areas, really, particularly around the genetic side. But you can actually get a regular test from the doctors if you have had multiple miscarriages um, where they look at um, some of those clotting genes. One in particular um, that they will look for are the factors. So factor five Leiden is a, is a big clotting disorder that they will look into. Um, PAI, um, 5G and 5, uh, 4G also a important ones to look for that's a new thing that we can look into which i've seen coming up with some of my clients in probably the last five years um and also some people say mthfr is a clotting disorder which i don't necessarily agree with but it does have a bearing on you know cardiovascular health so maybe that's where it came from with that um so yeah in, in the clotting panel that i have um when i'm looking into some of my genetic side of things 
um, it will look at all of the factors um, and you know most people will have a heterozygous one as part of that overall panel. It doesn't necessarily mean that you will have um, you know problems with that and I think sometimes we can get very kind of worried about um, you know having a clotting disorder and you know if we see our genetics and thinking oh that's that's terrible but I think you know just looking at symptoms really signs and symptoms um, you know can help with how your period health is really um, and also when you cut your finger how long it takes to clot um, you know if it's very fast or very slow that's an indication of what's happening in the body there so if you do have um, you know working with a, um, a haematologist or someone that can actually um, help you understand that a bit more that's great often a lot of my clients will be put on um, some um, anti-clotting agents like um, Lovenox or Plexane during pregnancy um, and it basically helps to thin the blood a little so that you know there's no issues with multiple miscarriage so again diagnosis is key there if you do have a situation where you've lost more than two to three pregnancies um, either in the early stage or or any side of the trimester um, as throughout the pregnancy it's worth looking into maybe genetic side of things but also maybe getting referred um, to a specialist to see if they can test you for any clotting disorders. Yeah it's very interesting I had no idea about the the sepsis and how that mm -hmm. Um, could play into the genetics that we have now but I feel like that's the case even on the um, the PCOS episode that I had with Dr Felice Gersh that you said that you listened to how she was explaining that women with PCOS although we can struggle with symptoms in the modern lifestyle we were the ones who maybe thrived thousands of years ago when there were famine or um, when there was a lot of stress we were like the warriors so you can kind of think of that with a lot of genetics and even though they can cause us problems now we can think of them as like protective evolutionary um yeah. changes that have been made but when mm -hmm. it comes to genetics we sometimes hear about the fact that we can control whether the genes are on and off that genetics aren't the destiny that we have influence over them how much of that is true so say we have a genetic snip like mthfr we'll come on to what that is but mm. are we able to have fully functioning enzymes in the mthfr if we have a snip or do we always have some sort of um lowered function with that once we have a genetic snip in that enzyme well i would say people with mthfr can live a very healthy life and i think this whole supplementing because you've got a gene is very dangerous i've seen a lot of these gene companies now suggesting people go down a, a route of certain diets because of that um you know you look at populations of the world you know in some of the um the information in pubmed um if you have any sort of south american particularly mexican blood and also um mediterranean blood as well there's a very strong likelihood that you have got mthfr more common than for example if you were from northern europe as well um so you know we're talking about the fact that you have a genetic predisposition which gives you an advantage or disadvantage based on that particular time so I would look at it always as uh, you know as that kind of situation um, it's there in your family genetics for a reason and it could well be that that just makes you eat more folate or maybe it's happened because your um, your family group generally eats a lot of folate and you don't necessarily need a fully functioning MTHFR gene there 
Um, if you become a salad dodger, however, then you're in trouble. Um, so um, I think that's the problem that's happening with, with modern world really is we are unaware of the fact that, you know, maybe these genetic disadvantages at the time were an advantage because you didn't necessarily need that for many generations. People were eating, you know, a high folate diet and you didn't necessarily need to have, you know, a, a huge amount of folate because you were eating it regularly and it came up as that situation. But I think, you know, now we're not necessarily eating as much. Um, it can be a problem because, um, you know, I liken it to dial-up internet as opposed to, um, you know, sort of 5G really internet. You know, if it's all working, it's very fast. The conversions are happening, you know, and everything's good. But if you've got dial-up internet, you still get the internet, but it just takes a lot longer to get there, really. Um, and those things like the environment will trigger some of these genes into action. So they can be, you know, sleeping and dormant, and there's no problem at all with it until, for example, you know, your son or daughter goes off to university and they're having pot noodles for, you know, for, for dinner every night. You know, I've got a nephew that's doing it at the moment, much to my horror, he told me that he eats pot noodles all the time. <laughs> Um, and again, that's when your, your health starts to suffer because folate is a very, very important thing for DNA replication. And I think, you know, regardless of the fact that, you, you know, you want to have a baby or you're listening into this because of the fact that, you, you know, you're keen on improving your fertility, you do need to have a lot of folate in your diet because, you know, cells die and they need replicating before they do so that we can actually repair and, and improve things. So it's a, it's a key important factor. And I think, you know, with the government mandating folic acid in lots of different countries, including the UK now, the, the premise behind that is good, but folic acid generally needs lots of functioning enzymes to actually make it work. And we're not just talking about MTHFR there on the folate pathway. MTHFR is right at the bottom. It's your, almost your final destination, your slip road before you're coming off the motorway. Um, but you've got to get all the way from, you know, junction one all the way to junction 10, you know, on, you know, on the motorway before MTHFR makes, makes a play for things or, you know, can be a problem. We've got all these enzymes along the way, um, dihydrofolate reductase and some other things like that, which break down the folate. And if you're going in there with folic acid um, and you haven't got those enzymes or you've, you've got sort of... Um, uh, problems with you know heterozygous or even homozygous and some of those folate receptors you've got problems um so that whole folate pathway becomes you know a very very difficult um process um and you know folic acid is something that i've been not using in my practice probably for about the last five years now um i know it's very buzzy in the nutrition world and everyone's talking about it but um it's just something, why would you put something in that's so cheap that, you know, generally you don't know what the population has in terms of how many other genetic um, mutations they may have on that side or SNPs that can't break it down. When you've got something that may be a little bit more expensive to produce, we've stabilised MTHFR now, 5-MTHF as a, a supplement. So, you know, it might be a little bit more expensive, but it's essentially the same family as, as folic acid, but it's just, you know, it's the, the Waitrose version as opposed to the Tesco's value version. <laughs> <laughs> I'm loving all of these analogies. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely helps people understand. And yeah, some people can be a little bit put off by the price, some of these like practitioner grade supplements, but 
oftentimes you need to take less you don't need to take them for as long they're more effective and if you're not aware of your genetic makeup then rather than guessing and seeing if folic acid works it could potentially have some negative effects so why not just go straight in with folates which we know works for the majority of people anyway and apart from the mthfr genetic affecting fertility because of that folate connection are there any other common genetic variants that can affect fertility that people should know about yeah absolutely i've got a kind of list here really that i can go through maybe so my key areas that i look at i don't just go to you know the uh the mr popularity contest with mthfr i think people do get their knickers in a twist about mthfr there's so many other things that can also um you know impact your fertility for one, looking at your detox ability, you know, so that whole area of, of detox genes through phase one through to phase two are very, very important for me. Um, making sure that we're looking at things that help break down estrogen um, into its metabolites and then also from where the metabolites are, passing that through to the next conduit that allows you then to methylate. So things like um, the CYP um 1a1 gene that's very important to make sure that that gives you bioavailable estrogen um through breaking that down um those enzymes break down um estrogen you don't just kind of you know produce estrogen and wow woo, we've got it in our womb lining we actually have to break it down you know in a in a very sort of functional way um with enzymes and then we get metabolites and obviously we need to pee out that excess as well and, and also you know get rid of it um so CYP1A1 is very important. Um, checking that on the genetic side to see what we do with estrogen. Um, if that is a heterozygous gene, or even if it's homozygous, that can mean that you have problems um, getting access to the um, uh, the key important estrogen, really, which is the 2OH estrogen. Um, and also important to look at things like um, CYP1B1, which I see quite a lot. And that particular um, gene um, actually um, can help to, through the process of um, breaking it down, um, proliferate it really in terms of estrogen-based cancers. So um, I've got that in my family actually. And the last Dutch test that I did, which is a really, really brilliant test, and I'm sure you're going to be having Dr. Carrie Jones on to talk about that, actually um, gives you an indication of whether this is working effectively or whether it's not. And I know, for example, that I've got two heterozygous, well, four heterozygous genes on the CYP1B1 um, SNP. And that, again, has made it more difficult for me to break down estrogen um, and has caused problems with um, my metabolism there in terms of 4-OH. So very, very key ones on the detox panel. Also looking at how you break down um, glutathione as well or, or your available glutathione. So things like um, GPX3, um, GST1, um, GSTP1, all of those are very important because particularly the GSTP1, if you have high blood pressure in the family or anything like that, that can predispose you to things like preeclampsia as well during pregnancy. Um, and also... Anything that breaks down or supports glutathione in the body, again, can be you know, very important because what happens with um, some problems with um, uh, pregnancy is it can mean that your digestion is a little bit um, up the spout. Um, and that can mean potentially that um, bile becomes thicker, 
um, and the GPX3 actually can predispose you to things like gallbladder issues, um, which again links with another gene, um, PEMT, which again will help with choline and also it helps with fat metabolism as well. So if you've got two of those genes in particular, it can actually predispose you to more things like gallbladder issues and breaking down bile, which again is how you get your nutrients broken down in bile um, and how you, know, how you process through the digestive system. So those key detox ones are the ones that I go to first, um, which I'm really, really keen to look at. Um, the clotting factors are very important because, again, if they've had multiple miscarriages, I look at that. Um, obviously, MTHFR is very important if you have compound MTHFR, which means you've got two heterozygous genes um, in the most popular SNPs, really, in those positions, the A1298 and the C677T. Um, that means that your gene is functioning um, at 50%, so it's much less but if you have a homozygous gene for C677T, which again can predispose you to cardiovascular events and high homocysteine, things like that, that's also important um, in terms of the genetic side of things. The other key thing that I would say as a gene that I always look for really, which is in this fabulous test, the Dutch test that I use a lot, is the, um, the COMT gene. So the COMP gene I call is the kind of um, air traffic control really. So it brings in um, neurotransmitters or it lets them stay up there too long and cause all sorts of problems. Um, it also brings in estrogen and allows you to break that down effectively. So it then moves your estrogen to phase two. So it's an important um, conduit, if you like, a, a key gene there that, uh, that does two things. It's got two hats there, supports neurotransmitters, um, and some key areas there, but it also helps you um, on the oestrogen metabolism. So if you haven't got issues further up with the detox, you may have a big blockage in the pipes really with, with um, the COMT gene. And I think for women who are coming to me with fertility issues, who've got oestrogen issues in the family like fibroids or, or endometriosis um, or things like that generally and have high levels of oestrogen or cysts on recent tests, then I'm always interested in looking to see if COMT is an issue there and then trying to put something in place that really helps that. So that's very basic around the, the genetics that I look for. There's a whole load of other things that are important like MTRR for the methionine cycle, um, things like PON1, which looks at how you actually break down pesticides in the body. Um, and also if you have um, you know, some detox genes that doesn't allow you to break down um, things like antigens really the HLA DR genes and, and mold and things like that and it can actually you know cause you more problems because it doesn't recognize um, a lot of those kind of problems in the body so it's looking at it in terms of an overall but always important I would say as a practitioner to put this alongside functional tests because you don't know if some of these things are expressing until people have got symptoms so never use a SNP as a basis for actually putting your whole program together because there's lots of people that are super healthy that have really rotten genes and they mitigate it by looking after themselves very well. So that's what I like about the Dutch test as well because it doesn't only give you an indication as to your genetics, it's definitely not a diagnostic in terms of that, but it can help you see what's going on in terms of your methylation status, your um, comp function, because I actually have 
uh, homozygous for COMPs as well. So I need to be really careful about estrogen and magnesium and B6 like save me from having all of these like anxiety symptoms, histamine symptoms, but obviously everyone's different and needs to take that into consideration as well. Um, and how much control do you think we do have over the expression of our genetics? We have a whole lot of control over this. I think, you know, when we're a bit younger, it isn't really a major problem. But if you get sort of past 35, probably even sort of to 39, I think things start to really slow down. And that's when you really can't be partying like a rock star really all the time. You've got to take it easy. And I think, you know, as older women are coming to me to get pregnant and they're saying, I'm starting an IVF cycle next month. We just need a little bit more time really to work through some of these things because if they're starting to you know cause problems in the body and inflammation starting to start with that we need to just you know have a little bit more time to really go into that um, and work through some of those issues so it does have a, a huge factor on on things generally but i think you know if they are generally living in um, you know, a, a very healthy environment, um, stress is low and, you know, they're having regular holidays to kind of relax and they're looking after themselves with the right levels of exercise and they're also eating quite healthily as well. Um, some of these things don't start to trigger, you know, um, but again, if they are coming to me for some support for fertility, then potentially they are. So we just need to look at what those basic um, genetics are and put that alongside a test and, and see where we can actually really delve into that and support um, you know, both partners really. And apart from the full thyroid panel that we've mentioned, the Dutch test has been um, helpful add on to that. Are there any other lab tests that you recommend most women get when they're trying to conceive? Um, males as well, Do are there any different things that men should get checked out? Yeah, I mean, I go for very um, comprehensive blood tests to begin with, because although the Dutch test is brilliant, it doesn't look at things like FSH and LH. Um, it will look at estradiol, but um, trying to explain to clients that their estrogen blood values are different from um, the Dutch test is always something interesting, um, because obviously we've got to explain that it's metabolised and it's actually what's coming out the other end, what's been peed out really, that's been utilised. Um, so. I generally go for a very comprehensive test um, on the hormone side. So I would also look at um, LH, FSH, prolactin, because I think that's very important because that can actually cause problems with fertility as well. Um, I look at um, testosterone because that, again, if it's out of balance, can cause problems. Um, and again, I'll look at DHEA and also sex hormone binding globulin because, again, for me, that's an interesting one to look at because we can see where everything's being um, pushed into the cupboard, if we say really for SHBG. If that's high, I often find that that's interesting in terms of inflammation. There's something going on there in terms of it preferentially binds to testosterone, um, but it will also bind to estrogen as well. So if you've got very high levels of that and everything else seems to be okay, then that's kind of a bit of a red flag for me to look into something a bit more um, that there's inflammation or there's something um, that is you know kind of causing a problem with the signaling between the hypothalamus pituitary and the ovaries really um, and also the androgen side of things so I kind of put it in that group it's 
part of it's not necessarily part of the androgen um, panel but it does soak it up it's kind of a sponge I call it, it sponges all the kind of um, the excess hormones up um, and I think if it's if it's being utilized in its high levels then that's an important one to look at um, so the men can actually get exactly the same tests as the women the only thing that um, I would say they don't get is progesterone testing so all the things I've just mentioned there we can also look into for male health um, I look also at if potentially they're a little bit tired or they have some symptoms of thyroid issues or the thyroid is suboptimal, I will also look at gut health as well. So I start off with the first tier and then I kind of um, go layer deeper. It's a bit like layers of the onion, really. Once you start peeling, you know, you need to get to the right ones. Um, and if there's some issues with thyroid health and they've had some bloating or some issues over the years or they've been to very unusual places on holiday, I'm right in there with a the gut and stool analysis. Um, so those are very basic ones that I do. If I can do, I do the Dutch test because that gives me more indication of some of those neurotransmitters as well and how those are working and also some basic nutrients as well um, in their more active forms. Um, so yeah, those are the very basic ones. Then if there are some issues, we, we do delve a little bit deeper if um, they are suffering some um, from some other symptoms. We look into um, mycotoxins tests if we can do. Um, you know, it becomes a very expensive situation if people are coming to me and they've got lots of different symptoms. Um, if on the first glance, the hormones are looking fairly decent, then we don't need to go and spend a lot more money on that because it looks like everything seems to be working from um, that whole HPO and HPA access. Um, that's the good thing about the ducts as well. We look into the adrenal health. So everything else might be perfect, but if their adrenals are out of whack, then that can actually bulldoze a lot of the good work that you're doing because um, your stress levels can actually um, be the most important thing according to your body because it thinks you're in flight and fight so everything else goes to the wall really. Yeah, your hormones are definitely one of the they're like the followers aren't they they're not going to be balanced and healthy until your thyroid is until your gut is until inflammation levels are under control as well and I've definitely seen that with the sex hormone binding globular when that's high it's indicative of inflammation and stress. Where do you see, what do you see being the cause of low levels? Do you see like PCOS is a common one? Yeah, but weirdly, I've been seeing higher levels with people with PCOS, lean PCOS lately. So it's not following the, um, the usual route. And I guess when it's high, if you have got PCOS, it's definitely an indication that um, there's inflammation happening somewhere, um, potentially um, gut parasites, SIBO and mould and things like that really. So that's always one that jumps out at me that I think we need to do further tests when we see a very, very elevated level of sex hormone binding globulin. Um, we go into that really. Yeah. And just lastly, touching on the subject of PCOS and endometriosis, because mm -hmm. these are two of the most common conditions that women have these days, um, especially mm -hmm. people who I'm working with. How do these affect fertility and what are your kind of treatment approaches to both of those conditions? So with PCOS, um, again, just like um, Dr. Felice Gersh said, it's an evolutionary advantage. It basically meant that there was famine over a period of time that actually changed the genetics. So you can see this in some of the genes, um, you know, they, they jump out. And even I've got some of these genes that relate to that. And I can see that through my family 
line as well glycoma diabetes things like that really um so i think if you have this it can at any time start coming into play if you start eating badly and stressing yourself out and also not exercising so you may have a situation where you've been completely lean through your early teens and things like that and then suddenly you start to put weight on and you start to have those classic symptoms or you have you know really bad acne or you know sort of acne in the rest of the body and things like that so it's something that I think is really important to check always looking at your genetics to see if you're predisposed to some of these conditions um i.e you know the way your body manages insulin um and how it stores things so checking that is really important for me because you may not on the surface appear to be a typical polycystic ovary person or have some of those kind of list of things um but it's in your genetics so we don't want to obviously um you know start causing problems with that side so sometimes if i do see this and they've gone for um ivf and it's not been very successful or they've had anxiety and some issues like that i pop in you know a high dose of inositol which i find is a really really good supplement there's a lot of research behind it around the fact that you know probably at some point they wanted to try and patent it which is probably why there's a lot of research around it um so you you can't sort of go five five seconds in PubMed without looking at you know the importance of inositol in terms of it um, helping people with PCOS. So I would say one of the supplements that I use there. But in terms of the diet for PCOS, um, I'm not really a massive fan of ketogenic um, for PCOS um, because it can actually change the way your body works. Um, and then when you start eating semi-normal again, you know the, the weight piles back on again. I do have a form of that, obviously, and it's looking at what works for you. And I do generally tend to go um, more lower carb. What I would say for people who have that predisposition, they have a family history of PCOS or PCO, is that probably being a vegetarian isn't the best idea for you. Because, again, that's going to be much higher in carbs. Um, and also it will predispose you to things potentially like copper toxicity as well, which, again, can imbalance um, the way that your body works in terms of estrogen so there's lots of things really that um, we need to look at before people go vegetarian or if it is suited to them and it's around the genetics and also what their predispositions are really and if they have a family history of PCOS um, it's just all those kind of red flags that say not probably your diet and although it's an ethical question it's about you know how that actually makes your body perform really in terms of you know burning fuel and, and and surviving really so i'd say lower carb for somebody with pcos or or have you know that in the family um and also making sure that you have a lot of phytonutrients in there really because you'll need a lot, a lot of antioxidants to support um what's happening because um we've got issues with you know how the body uses insulin um and also i would say for a, a generic one really it's just um you know working with the person um you know i don't have a kind of one size fits all for pcos because again like i said i had a lady who had you know very high sex hormone binding globulin so we wouldn't necessarily we'd treat and support the pcos but also there was you know a kind of a red flag there in terms of inflammation in the body so you, you're constantly putting out fires really as a nutritional therapist in terms of what you need to be working on and what's the primary kind of objective really for, for that particular moment. 
um, and once you put out a few fires, then you can start working on, you know, business as usual, which is, you know, polycystic ovarian syndrome or something that's stopping them getting pregnant, really, from that side. So it's about getting the cycle going to begin with. Um, and it could well be that, you know, it's not necessarily the PCOS that's the major problem at the moment. It may be that they have a lot of parasites or gut issues um, or bacterial problems there, which we need to sort. And that, again, can start the motor running once we get things going with the gut health. Um, and then if they have PCOS, it's, um, it's exacerbating their PCOS if things aren't working in the gut very well. Yeah, it's a huge gut connection with the hormones in general. And mm. I've definitely, some clients feel like when we've addressed one thing, there's another thing pops up and we kind of, like you said, putting out fires, but it's because the body is so complex and mm-hmm. you can't expect your hormonal symptoms and your chronic illnesses to disappear within a couple of months if they've been developing mm-hmm. for maybe decades. Um, yeah. Cause the body is so kind of complex, like I said. So I want to finish up now because I know that you've got a lot to do today and I want to respect your time. I had a ton more questions. You know that I had questions on IVF, egg health, all of these things. So I would love to have you back on, maybe to do a separate podcast episode, a part two, if you're happy to in a couple of months time. Um, And if there's any questions from today, I can kind of gather them up. I'm sure there will be. And we can answer them in a second episode, if that's fine with you. So um, yeah, thank you so much for your time, Angela. And can we finish up by letting people know where they can find you online? And I know that you've just yesterday launched your Fertility Unlocked course. So sadly, we've missed the enrollment for this time. But are you going to be running that again? And what does that entail? Yeah, absolutely. So it was a bit of a hairy time yesterday trying to get everything sorted for that. But I've got a lovely group of ladies that are in there. Um, which we're going to get to know each other in the next four weeks. So it's, uh, I'm surprised I haven't done this sooner, actually, to be honest with you, Vivian. Um, but uh, I'm really, um, you know, head, ears and backside into the whole process now, which is great. Um, I'm hopefully going to be running it towards the end of the year. Um, I've got obviously um, August off, which I think is good. I think most nutritional therapists need a bit of a break because it's very intensive work working with people to help balance their hormones and get them pregnant. So um, there's going to be a little bit of time off for me to do a bit of research and change the way I work and move into different areas and develop certain things. But I will hopefully be running that towards um, the kind of uh, end of the year, really, um, for a new cohort of people. But um, in terms of where to find me, I have a website, um, Fertile Ground Nutrition. So just put that in www.fertileground-nutrition.com. Um, but I'm probably more active on Instagram than anything else, really. Um, I have a range of Facebook groups as well, Fertile Ground um, as one of them is a closed group. And then I have Fertile Ground Nutrition as my open group there. So if you have any questions on those groups, um, feel free to join them. Or, you know, if you wanted to, or if you're interested in the online program, then, um, you know, feel free to get in touch with me and I'll put you on the waiting list for the next one. Yeah definitely be a great opportunity for anyone who's trying trying to conceive currently or even in the future they just want to prepare the body i think that's the best situation sadly it's not always the case for most women and when they want a baby they want one now so i think you'd be the perfect person to get help from and even this episode has been packed full of helpful information for women couples so yeah thank you so much angela for your time and Definitely everyone go over to Instagram and follow the Fertility Nutritionist because you're going to learn so much. 
Thanks, Vivian. I've had a great time. Thanks for asking me. And it's been, it's been a packed full episode, which has been great. Are you struggling with symptoms of a hormonal imbalance? Do you have a diagnosis of PCOS, endometriosis, or unexplained infertility and just have no idea where to start? Are you constantly trying to cover your cystic acne with makeup or make your thinning hair appear thicker with different shampoos and hairstyles? Is your period all over the place? Is it really heavy or even completely absent? Do you spend all of your time searching online for answers, posting in Facebook groups trying to find the solution to your problems? If you answered yes to any of those questions and you live in the UK, you would be perfect for my six-week online group coaching programme that is due to begin on Wednesday the 4th of September 2019. Join me and nine other ladies each week as I teach you the six pillars of hormonal health, including how to regulate your blood sugar and insulin levels, improve gut health, regulate your adrenal and thyroid hormones and finally get control over your symptoms. Each week you'll have access to live video calls, worksheets and reading material for you to work through at your own pace. You'll get access to an interactive Facebook group where I'll be hosting weekly Q&As. This is your chance to ask me anything. There'll also be the option to upgrade for discounted one-on-one sessions and access to functional lab tests like the Dutch Hormone Panel and the GI Map Stool Test that you've probably heard me talk all about before on these podcast episodes plus recommendations for practitioner-grade supplements, all with 10% discount. Enrolment is now open and will be until the end of August 2019. If you're interested in this, you're a fan of this podcast, you love the work that I share on Instagram, secure your place now as there are only 10 spaces available. For more information and to get involved, head over to my website, vivanaturalhealth.co.uk and select the Hormones in Harmony group coaching program under the one-on-one support menu. I'll also include a link to the webpage in the show notes to this episode. If you have any questions, send me an email or DM on Instagram. You can find me at Viva Natural Health.